Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters. Learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create those products that customers love and that's what we are all about as everyday innovators. Now, I've been looking forward to this discussion with Greg Sattel since hearing he was working on a new book titled Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. Greg's an innovation author we first met back in episode 126, actually quite a while ago now, when he shared predictable patterns in different types of innovation. Now he's talking about how to create a movement around a product. A movement turns a valuable product into a super valuable sensation. And it does the same thing for brands. They often appear to be overnight successes that come out of nowhere, but they're actually the result of a proper combination of actions that can lead to cascades, he'll explain that, creating transformational change. There are many examples, but I remember thinking, and this was some time ago, when Tom Shoes kind of became a big thing, right? All of a sudden, it was out of nowhere. It's like, what is this thing Tom Shoes that everyone's talking about? It became this overnight sensation, at least it appeared to. Now, Greg will tell us how that happens and what is needed to make it happen. That's something everyday innovators should be aware of. And you should also be aware of my incredible note-taking skills. Oh, yeah. If you hear anything you want to go back to, or if you just want a simple way to share the key concepts we discuss with a colleague or your team, I can easily make that happen for you. All you do is you go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 225, and you'll see the written summary of what we discuss. Now, let's talk to Greg. Greg, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovators once again. Thanks for having me, Chad. We were back nearly 100 episodes ago in episode 126 when you were sharing insights from your book, Mapping Innovation, and I found that really interesting. You had observed common patterns that were part of successful innovations. And then you recently told me about a new effort you're working on, a book called Cascades, just was published this week. Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. And when I heard the topic itself, I thought, you know, that's an important topic for sure. We all deal with change. I think it's a particularly important topic for product managers right now. Maybe we can talk more about that perspective. But first, I just want to kind of get the background on this. What led you to write this book? I think it's related to mapping innovation in that in mapping innovation, I described innovation as a process uh, of discovery, engineering, and transformation, uh-huh. and talked quite a bit about we always in- underestimate the transformation. We think if we can invent a new product uh, or a new technology that the job is done. But actually getting that into the marketplace and adopted and driving a transformation is often the hardest and longest part. Right. So I came up with the, the origins of, of Cascades uh, has a funny little story behind it. In 2004, I found myself running a, a major news organization in Kiev, Ukraine, during the Orange Revolution. So I was just absolutely amazed how thousands upon thousands of people who'd ordinarily be doing thousands upon thousands of different things would stop what they were doing and all of a sudden do the same thing together in absolute unison 
and seemingly be able to coordinate their their activity. And this happened in ways that were large and small. Uh, but we hear the the uh, the phrase something going viral in this environment. Everything went viral all the time for weeks and weeks and weeks. And running a pretty significant operation at the time, I couldn't help thinking, gee, you know, I'd really like to be able to do that. You know, Uh I've got all these different customers buying all these different things. I'd like them to unify on the one thing that I want to sell them. And I've got these, you know, hundreds of different employees, all with different ideas. I want them to embrace the one idea, the, the, the initiative that, that, that I feel is important. And I have advertisers and investors. So, uh, I was, you know, just amazed by this magical force that could do it in the wild. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could do that with a business? Uh, and that was a very hard and very interesting question. And it took me about 15 years to follow, to, to, to figure it out. Uh-huh. And it took me, my journey went through uh, uh, network theory and social revolutions and corporate turnarounds. And what I found was whether the transformation was political, social, or within an organization, uh, the successful ones, although they started out in very different contexts, very different personalities, very different philosophies, they all ended up with the same set of principles that allowed them to drive change. And Cascades is about that set of principles then. And, and that's what became Cascades. Okay. And as, as uh, you can read in the book, uh, I met an quite an interesting cast of characters uh, through uh, throughout the journey, you know, ranging from, People, uh, one of uh, Lou Gerstner's chief lieutenants in uh, in the nineties that drove IBM's turnaround, huh. to a guy who basically overthrows countries for a living, to a uh, woman who took it upon herself to create a revolution in education and and uh, STEM teaching. Huh. So uh, it was just an absolute fantastic adventure doing the research for the book. And uh, hopefully I conveyed that same sense of adventure in the book. Uh, Absolute adventure and inspiring too. I think those stories of large scale change like that is very inspirational. And you alluded to why I think this is an important book right now to product managers. We think often building the product is the hard work. And then if we've been through it, we recognize actually getting the marketplace to receive that product is often the hard work. And if we've built the product, we really built the right product, the product that creates value for customers, uh, then it's easier to get attention for sure. That's what we want to start with. But I've started noticing a few, for lack of a better word, communities, maybe you would call them networks, that have been built up around products that are kind of movements in themselves. And some some people talking about the importance of creating that along at the same time as they're creating the product. And so I think this is a really timely book that people are recognizing the need to create the audience while you're creating the product and how those things kind of merge together. And uh, your book helps us with that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that we often forget is that the the value in a product mm-hmm. comes from the use of that product or service, right? So there's that dialogue back and forth. Uh, you in you design and you intend the product in a certain way. The user 
buys and or the consumer buys and uses that product for their own purposes. And there's always at least a little gap between those two things. So creating that community is not just for driving sales, but also for driving development. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. In this book, you talk about how we go about transforming change, and you say that it's built on this characteristic of small groups. You say it's built on small groups, but small groups that interact with each other in a loosely connected manner and with a united purpose. I kind of want to break that down and talk about what's in that, right? If, if this transformation is built on these small groups that behave that way. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, that comes directly from the network research. One of the reasons I, I really love the title for the book is when you say cascade, everybody knows basically what you mean. It's a colloquial term, but it's also a very, very technical term for viral activity. It's a viral cascade in a network. And uh, and just mathematically, theoretically, we can find that it's driven by small groups loosely connected. In terms of the real-world examples, I think that the most vivid real-world example is the Saddleback Church, which is this enormous church, one of the largest congregations in the world out in Orange County, California. Uh-huh. And every weekend, they this, they have over 20,000 people that attend the services. And people who look at it say, oh, wow, that's a big crowd. You know, how, how did they get, how did they get those masses? They must have some massive marketing campaign. But what actually makes the Saddleback Church work is networks of small prayer groups that meet during the week. Uh-huh. These small prayer groups of are six or eight people. And those small groups are important because they, that those are really, really strong bonds. Uh, And that's what really drives that passion. We derive our passion from what's around us. It's hard to derive passion, passion from a hundred thousand other people, but you can be very passionate about, you know, five or six or eight people who, who are around you. Right. So that's why the small groups are important. Now, we all belong to other groups as well, not just a prayer group, but our team at work or our uh, our family or uh, friends from school, what have you. Uh-huh. Another important discovery in network theory is 
that's how information spreads. Uh, and, and you might have heard the term, the, the strength of, uh, of weak ties from the sociologist Mark Granovetter. And so information can move through those small groups uh, through common connections very, very quickly. And one of the most interesting um, one of the most interesting findings was there uh, as those connections form, you hit a, a point that's called an instantaneous phase transition where automatically the network connects. Really good example of that is uh, lolcats. You remember the lolcats, fr- uh, the lolcats craze back in the what was it, late nineties or something like that, where all of a sudden everybody started emailing each other these uh, uh, these LOL cats with funny uh. pictures and, and phrases. Uh, that actually, and it seemed like it exploded all at once. But actually, that had been incubating on the online community 4chan, where people started uh, trading them. And it was on, it, it was very, very popular on 4chan for 12 or 18 months. But of course, people on 4chan, they also had friends off of 4chan and they started sending them. And then the people they they sent them to started sending them to others who <laughs> then started sending them to each other. And at one point, the system tipped and the lolcats craze came about. Uh, and then, of course, in order to, to, to actually drive a particular change, those small groups loosely connected need to be uh, united by a sense of shared purpose. And this is where leadership comes in. So when we talk about uh, these network cascades, uh, we always talk about them being leaderless, leaderless revolutions, leaderless organizations. And we hear a lot of talk about uh, how leadership isn't so important because of, you know, technology allows us to connect much, much more efficiently. And in many cases, we don't really need uh, a leader to organize the work, uh, but we do need leaders to inspire and empower mm-hmm. belief. And you can see a lot of these movements, Occupy being being one, uh-huh. um, they, they often fail because they don't have a strong leader uh, giving or, or leadership group giving it direction. And uh, even more importantly, uh, implementing values. And we, we see this with the Women's March most recently, because they weren't clear about their values. Uh, you could see the small groups loosely connected and how that created a movement, but it was very, very easy to derail when one of the leaders, uh, you know, took a picture with Louis Farrakhan, which a lot of them, a lot of people in the movement didn't like, but it had never really been set down whether that was a value. And values are important for two reasons. First of all, values come with costs. Right. If uh-huh. you're serious about values, you're willing to incur costs. And in our workshops, we often ask, okay, what are the values in your organization? And they say, oh, well, dedication to customer, this, that, and the other. Say, so, okay, what do those values cost you? Because if you're not willing to incur costs, it's not much of a value. Uh-huh. The other thing that makes values important, they also represent constraints. So when Nelson Mandela uh, in, in 
the apartheid years. Uh, the African National Congress, way back in 1955, I believe it was, worked with other groups within uh, with within South Africa to come up with something called the Freedom Charter. And then later, you know, decades later, when people asked, uh, you know, accused uh, Nelson Mandela of being an anarchist and a communist and all sorts of things, he said, listen, you don't have to guess what I believe. It was all written down in the Freedom Charter way back in 1955. And then when he came to power, those values became constraints on what he could do. It said he, you know, you have to treat everybody equally, white, black, or whatever. That was much more attractive when the whites were in power than when the blacks were in power, because it limited what he could do. Uh And it made people quite angry with him when he said, no, we need to honor those values. But that's why today we remember Nelson Mandela as a hero and not some tin pot warlord. It's a really good point about the values. And I was thinking about the the 1% movement that you mentioned before, that it kind of lost its steam over time just because you didn't really know what it stood for anymore. You had too many voices in front of the media that weren't coherent. There was that. There was no discipline. Uh, I remember in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, which was centered on the Maidan, very much like Occupy was centered on uh, Zakodi Park in, in Manhattan. You know, people would bring their kids to the Maidan. You saw all sorts of people. Nobody was bringing their kids to Zakodi Park. It was filthy. Hmm. Uh, during the chaos of the Orange Revolution, the only orderly place was within the tent city. Uh, there, you saw order uh, because they were disciplined, because they were serious about their values. Hmm. And they made those values very, very clear. And nobody, even someone like me who, you know, as a foreigner, was certainly not an insider with these young, mostly student protests, protesters. I was very clear on what those values were. And I talk about in the book how one of them was a no drinking rule at the, at the demonstrations. This is in Ukraine where people drink everywhere. Huh. But at the demonstrations, there was no drinking. And if anybody pulled out a beer, someone would politely tell them, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And I never saw anybody refuse. Yeah, it became a value, a characteristic of the group. As you were describing, like Saddleback Church as an example, and how there are small groups or these prayer groups that have started the network, I didn't hear you anywhere in there talk about influencers, talking about this notion of you know key people that know a lot of people that have large networks, and that that's how we make something more viral. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, the, the, the influencer thing is something that came, uh, you know, it's gone through several several iterations over the decades. Uh, we used to call them uh, opinion leaders. Uh-huh. Um, and then Malcolm Gladwell sort of popularized this notion of influencer with his power of the few in the tipping point. Um, and it, I think it has a lot of resonance because it seems so, uh, intuitively so right yeah i mean we know we all know people who are you know able to influence others either because they have the gift of gab or they're connected to a lot of people so it makes sense that those people drive change but what the empirical research shows is that to create a viral cascade you don't need a few influential people you need these long chains of influence 
And so, you know, you're quite an influence, influential guy. And, you know, if you, uh, if, if you say something, maybe a hundred people will, 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 will believe it. But unless those hundred people are going and influencing hundreds more, the chain's going to stop right there. So with these massive cascades, it's more about the structure of the network. Uh, and the, uh, there's been very good research in the past 10 years or so where they've gone and done email studies or looked at Twitter users. And what they always find is that these big hubs, A, aren't so important. And B, that while some people tend to be more influential than others, it is a function of their position in the network or, uh, and it's, they're not so much more influential than anybody else that, that it's really worth identifying. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the exceptions, of course, because, uh, in, uh, influence marketers they always say, oh well we do you know we've had great results with uh, with our influencer marketing and you find out that when they say influencer marketing what they really you know what they're talking about could just as easily be described as either trade marketing or celebrity endorsement and that's quite a different thing it is yeah the celebrity is leveraging their notoriety and their influence uh, with a group of people which is different Right. If you get Oprah to in, endorse your product, you know, that is going to give you a big boost. Oprah fans will pay attention. By the vir- virtue of Oprah being on TV. Right. <laughs> Not because she has some mysterious, you know, influence. Okay. So we don't need to have special people. We need to have these small groups that are loosely connected and share a common values, a common mission, united together somehow. Common purpose. Yeah. Okay. But what's key is driving those connections. And I think in any transformation, uh, one of the questions I always get is people say, well, how do I convince people? And that when you feel like you have to convince people, you're going down the wrong road. Mm-hmm. Either you pick the wrong problem that people don't really care about, or you've picked the wrong people. Exactly. The way you create a cascade or a movement or a community is you get a group of enthusiastic people to influence others who are slightly less enthusiastic. And they, and those, in turn, can start influencing others who are slightly less en- enthusiastic. And that's how you build momentum and create a movement. Yeah, and I like how you phrased that. And that's what we do as product managers, right? If, if we know we have a product that creates value for a group of people, then obviously that's our target market. That's our segment that we go after. You know, in the work that I do, the, I fully expect that there's some self-selecting going on, which says, well, you know, we don't really like how Chad approaches product management or innovation. We're going to look somewhere else. Those who do would naturally be more attracted to, you know, being a listener to this podcast, for example. Right. The problem isn't so much how do you go and convince those people, but mm-hmm. how do you empower those who already are enthusiastic? So that they will more naturally share this with others who could be moved to be more enthusiastic. Right. One of the concepts that came out of mapping innovation was a hair on fire use case, where when you're doing something, I mean, we generally, when we're developing a product, we look for the largest addressable market. And that's 
fine in, with a conventional product in a conventional category. But when you're doing something new and different, the last thing you want is a large addressable market. What you want is to find a hair on fire use case, somebody who has a problem so badly that their hair is almost on fire and they'll work with you to get it solved. Uh, and they'll put up with the little minor glitches that come up and, and, and they'll, they'll give you suggestions. And then once you, you can satisfy them, then you can think about scaling up. But before you can create, uh, before you can create a market, you have to have a customer. And before you can have, uh, I say in the book, um, one of the ways that a lot of these movements, uh, fail is they, uh, they expect commitment right up front, huh. right? So they, uh, and, 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 and they want ideological purity. If you don't agree with them on any, on everything you don't, and you can see that with, with Occupy, but before you can have commitment, you first must have participation. And one of the things, uh, one of the inter- most interesting pieces of research I read was by two academics, uh, Chenoweth and Stefan, and they went back and looked at nonviolent revolutions versus violent revolutions. And what they found was, is that the nonviolent revolutions were far, far more successful. I think three or four times more successful. The reason was, is it's very hard to participate in a violent uprising, right? Right. I mean, mostly your participation is going to be limited to, to fighting age men and these days, some women as well. But those people, you know, you can't fight in a violent rebellion and go to work every day, right? Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't spend time with your families. Um, you have to kill people. You might be killed yourself. Uh, so those are all barriers to, uh, to, to participation, where a nonviolent, uh, nonviolent resistance, you know, on the Maidan, we saw everybody from kids to pensioners, mm-hmm. anybody can participate. And what they found was, is for every percentage point of participation, the chances of success raised significantly. Hmm. That's a really good point. I like how you phrase that. And we see this in the crossing the chasm model, you know, for product managers, before you can get that commitment of the buyer, you need that participation and you're looking for small groups that you can become early adopters. And from there, you, you know, broaden that out to larger markets over time. And you make a very good point there because uh, the crossing the chasm is is based on the uh, diffusion of ideas. Right? And what the diffusion of ideas describes is essentially a cascade. Yeah. One might say it's, it's a copy of that, but it's, that, that is the root uh, for sure. Um, I want to spend maybe a bit selfishly just a, a few minutes getting your ideas on helping me maybe create a movement, a cascade around this actual podcast. And I'll give you a, a few data points that are just going on, on in my mind. One is I know that there are some product directors, vice president products that use this podcast with their teams and uh, who listen regularly. And if they hear an episode that relates to something they've been talking about as a a team, they'll say, you know, send send it out to everyone, say, listen to this, let's talk about this at our next, you know, lunch and learn meeting or, or whatever they do internally. So it's providing some help to groups on concepts that are being, you know, discussed, you know, just hitting timely some of the things that are going on inside organizations. Another thing that I've been doing is working with companies in groups of seven to 14 people. We do this as a cohort 
where we go together, um, we meet 75 minutes a week virtually over nine weeks. And this group, usually a group a product team or a group of product managers, um, they're learning some foundational concepts and how to work better together, how to really be focused on the customer. And these small groups, right, seven to 14 people, they're finding great value in that. And I know in the past when I've helped connect people in different industries that they find great value just in that interaction about how they view the concepts from a different perspective in that different industry. I'm thinking about how can I make this podcast more valuable to people and create some small groups that might be interacting with each other in a more meaningful way. The first question you have to ask yourself is, what is the change you'd like to see? Mm-hmm. Right? What, would you, what would you like that change to, to, to look like? So, um, you know, product managers, uh, you know, maybe that's not seen as a distinct field like engineers, let's say, mm-hmm. um, doesn't have societies of uh, like engineers. Whatever it is, you would need to be able to answer the question. If I could, uh, if I could give you a magic wand and you could change whatever you wanted, what would that change look like? What would it feel like? What exactly would it be? And once you've defined that vision for tomorrow, you have to go back a little bit. And then because that vision is almost never uh, achievable in one step. Right. Uh, and w- one of the examples I-, I give of this in in the book is Gandhi's Salt March. It was impossible to achieve Indian independence with one step, right? Uh, in fact, he had tried it back in 1919, ended in absolute disaster. So when he was asked to design a a uh, a, a program of civil disobedience, he he had to think long and hard of it hard about it because he wanted to avoid the mistakes he had made a decade before. And he came up with this idea of a salt march, which nobody thought was significant as, at the time, but today is considered his greatest triumph because the salt march was, was a keystone change. It was a clear and tangible goal to overturn the salt laws. It was, uh, it, it uh, he had to gain the support of multiple stakeholders many of the same stakeholders who he would need to make independent independence possible. And third, it paved the way for future change. So that's the second thing you would have to do to create your, your product management movement is once you, uh, once you define the vision, you need to think about something clear and concrete as a cask, as a keystone change that would help pave the way for that future change. Does that make sense so far? It does. Uh, give me some other examples of Keystone change. I really like the IBM example where they had to turn around the company. That was the vision. But the Keystone change was switching from the idea of a, a proprietary technology stack to a stack of customers' business processes. Hmm. More recently, Experian, uh, the vision was uh, to shift the company to the cloud to enable real-time data transfer. Um, the keystone change was internal APIs, uh, because once, you know, you have to do a lot of the same things to develop internal APIs as you do to develop external APIs, Uh but it's a lot easier. 
you need this. It involves a lot of the same people and it paves the way for future change because when they, people saw value in the internal APIs, they could see then escalating that to a full shift to a hybrid cloud uh, made a whole lot more sense and people felt a lot better about it. I give, I think, eight or 10 examples in the book. I don't, yeah. But moving on, so that gives you your vision and your keystone change. Uh-huh. But then you have to make a plan, right? Uh, there are two tools I, I talk about in the book. And uh, I came up with these tools in the best way possible. I absolutely stole them. <laughs> these are not my tools. They've been around for decades. The first is called the spectrum of allies. And this is sort of very similar to the, to, 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 to the uh, diffusion of, of ideas. Uh, although it, it's turned a little bit differently. You want to, you want to look uh, and examine the terrain. So you want to look, who are your most active supporters? Who are your passive supporters? Who are your neutral people? who's passive resistance, who's active resistance. And you want to focus your efforts as far to the right in the spectrum of allies as, as you can. Uh, and for your, for, for your listeners, you can Google this and spectrum of allies uh-huh. will come up in an image. Set. And, uh, and the idea is, is that you want to move, you know, your passive, passive allies into neutral, your neutral into passive uh, supporters, passive supporters, into your active supporters. And if you do this right, uh, you're not really engaging with your active resistors. You are, uh, but if, once you start undermining your, their support, often what you'll find, and by often I mean almost always, is they'll lash out in some way and push people your way. The second tool is called the pillars of support. So any status quo has uh, has needs institutions to support it. So if you think of like a, a an all powerful dictator, someone like a Kim Jong Un or a Saddam Hussein or somebody like that, and then just imagine that all the janitors decide not to come into work one day. Well, now that all powerful dictator is absolutely powerless to get the trash picked up. He can shoot the janitors, but again, that's not going to get the trash picked up. And you, what you'll find is in any uh, any regime or any status quo, uh, there's going to be a number of those institutions in a political environment. It'll be things like the military, the police, huh. the media, the uh, the education system, uh, uh, the business community. But those aren't the, so. While the spectrum of allies is is constituencies, the uh, pillars of support are institutions, and you want to identify them. Uh, not to knock them out, but to pull them in. So in a product management environment, those, those institutions would be things like customer groups, regulatory agencies, media, um, maybe, uh, maybe education, uh, can be a pillar, especially universities and community colleges. Mm-hmm. If this is a product that needs training, um, it could be, uh, industry associations, uh, department heads. So you want to identify those and start thinking about how you're going to pull them in. And then you start designing tactics to influence particular constituents, excuse me, particular constituencies in the spectrum of allies to influence 
specific institutions and the pillars of support. And then you do something called a, a, a power graph where you're tracking your progress according to those two uh, things. So next, so now that you, you have the tools to start making a plan, uh-huh. you're, you're also going to want to define what your values are. Uh, because as we talked, values are constraints. The other important thing about values, in the book I call them a genome of values. Because very much like our DNA, our values uh, give us uh, rules for adaptation, right? That's, that's basically what a value is. And, and again, we, we talked about this early, but values represent constraints. So you want to be clear what you will not do. Uh, then you want to start networking your movement. So who else can you ally with, right? Um, in something like product managers, you know, can you get engineering societies on board? Can you get manufacturing associations on board? Uh, then you need to start thinking about how you're going to develop platforms for this connection. That could be a podcast. It could be an email. It could be uh, networking groups. Um, uh, you know, you can think of something in terms of, 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 uh, what you do with this podcast, setting up a website for discussion groups, right? right? And, uh, and, and putting out study guides. Uh, that's one of the ways where Saddleback Church became a global phenomenon. Um, and then finally, so you want to define those platforms and tactics for connection. And then finally, the last thing, and this is where so many movements fail, you have to have a plan for surviving victory. So, uh, you know, you can think most vividly in the Arab Spring, right? Um, where they, you know, took to the streets to get rid of Mubarak and they ended up with Al-Sisi. <laughs> so they, they won the initial battle, but they right. did not survive victory. Same thing happened to us in Ukraine. Same thing happened in Serbia. Uh, in Serbia, it happened twice. The third time they planned to survive victory. But how many turnaround efforts or transformational efforts we see get you know, have this initial big win and then all of a sudden completely disappear. Right. So you, you, you need to make that plan to survive victory. And that plan always has to be based on values. Right. So, uh, for instance, in, in Ukraine in 2004 and five, we went to the streets to overturn an election in 2013 and 14 people went to the streets, but not to put anybody in office to become what they called a normal country to embrace European values. And now they're doing much, much better than we did back in 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, What was amazing is uh, one of the leaders of, of the movement in Serbia told me a very similar story to that. And then um, one of Luke Gerstner's key lieutenants, a guy named Irving Vladovsky Berger, uh, he told me, you know, if the Gerstner revolution at IBM, if, if it had been about, you know, products or technology, uh, it, it would have fizzled out. But because the IBM turnaround was based on values, we were able to continue to adapt as market conditions and technology change and Mm -hmm. keep that same. And if you look, 
Gerstner led left uh, uh, IBM in 2002. Now they've had their ups and downs since then, but think about who were the big tech companies in 2002. Most of them are absolutely gone. So that tells you what, you know, what longevity is like. So it's really important that when you come to that victory phase, you need to reassert your values and plan for overcoming because that's often most the most dangerous part. Yeah, I think where you see the power of values and a strong culture most is when you do have that CEO change in an organization. Absolutely, yeah. Some of the work that I've seen done is in transforming organizations using the Baldrige Quality Award process, right, and their their criteria. Mm -hmm. And organizations typically spend five years going through a process every year on their way to winning the award when they do win the award. And then if a new CEO comes in, one example of this off the top of my head that I'm thinking about, uh, when the new CEO does come in after that fact, if they've done a good job, which they have if they won the award, the values are really instilled in the culture. The CEO is now embracing what is there as opposed to being able to steer the organization in a different direction because the values are so strong. Absolutely. And and another thing I, I think that's important, and I mentioned a few times in the book, is that every revolution inspires a counter-revolution. Uh-huh. So when you switch a CEO, um, everybody who doesn't like the transformation immediately sees an opportunity to derail it. Right. So unless you've really instilled those values and those fundamental beliefs, the the, the potential for reversal becomes very, very great. Excellent. Well, you've given me a lot of ideas and thinking about this. I'm still pondering a lot about that keystone change and uh, drafting out what are the clear purpose, the mission of where this might go. Thanks for helping me provide some stimulus to think through that further. As listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us and why did you choose that one? My favorite innovation quote is that innovation is not about ideas, it's about problems. So if you want to drive innovation, Don't worry about coming up with a big, fancy idea. Go out and find a good, meaningful problem that somebody cares about. And that's where we should start. We are trying to provide value to others uh, with innovation. We need to identify problems others have first. I like that. Is that yours? Is that attributed to someone? Uh, No, that's mine. In in that case, I stole from myself. (laughs) Okay, very good. (laughs) As Steve Jobs said, right? You know, steal the best ideas from others. How can people find out about your book and the work that you're doing? My blog is Digital Tonto, digitaltonto.com. For my speaking and workshops, uh, gregsatel.com is a good place to go. I'm also on Harvard Business Review. I write articles for Barron's and for Inc. regularly. Excellent. And the book? Oh, the book is uh, uh, Cascades. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, local bookstores. Any Anywhere where, where you see business books sold, you should be able to find Cascades. And I will put a link to those resources in the show notes so people can find those easily. Greg, welcome back again. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to talk about the work that you're doing now on transformational change. And thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. My thanks to Greg for sharing that information. If you want the details, those written notes I talk about so many times, just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash 225 and you'll find that. Keep innovating. 
Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.